Thus, programs watch for their audiences and popular music hears for those who listen. Continental Philosophy Now podcast, existentialism, phenomenology, hermeneutics, and critical theory. Today, we're going to take a look at an idea in critical theory, namely the idea of the culture industry. My Twitter follower, Utmu, their Twitter handle is at underscore U-T-M-U underscore, won yesterday's Twitter race to make his suggestion, and so this is his prize. The term culture industry comes from the book Dialectics of Enlightenment, published in 1944. This is at the cusp of the end of World War II. It was written by Theodore Adorno and Max Horkheimer. Adorno was born in 1903 and died in 1969, while Max Horkheimer was born in 1895 and died in 1973. The term culture industry comes from a chapter from this book. The full title of the chapter is, quote, the, cultural, uh, the culture industry, enlightenment as mass deception, end quote. Both Adorno and Horkheimer were part of what's known as the Frankfurt School, or as it was formally named, the School for Social Research in Germany. The School for Social Research is related to the new school in, uh, in New York, which was founded by some Frankfurt School uh, emigres from Germany during World War II. In any case, it's out of this Frankfurt School that we get the movement or the tendency that we now call critical theory. So what was critical theory about or what is it about? According to the Wikipedia entry, In sociology and in political philosophy, the term critical theory describes a neo-Marxist philosophy of the Frankfurt School. So critical theory is the neo-Marxist wing of the Frankfurt School. Frankfurt theorists drew on the critical methods of Karl Marx and Sigmund Freud. Uh, It maintains that ideology is the principal obstacle to human liberation. So the Frankfurt School, the critical theory wing of the Frankfurt School, more properly, uh, they were interested interested in discovering the psychological roots, that is the ideological roots for the oppression of, uh, of people under late capitalism, mainly through economic means. So the economic oppression of people had wasn't just economic, it had its basis in ideology. Thus, they were interested in a critique of culture and they used the tools that Karl Marx developed through Marxism and the tools of the emerging psychoanalysis, as well as, at that time, part of what they were seeing was the measurement. There was a great interest in, in masks uh, culture, and they had begun to measure people's reactions and people's emotions Um in a quantifiable way. So this is also kind of the beginning of quantitative psychology. So they were very interested in that. There's a bunch of people who were part of this Frankfurt School that included Herbert Marcuse, Theodore Adorno, Max Horkheimer, Walter Benjamin, and Eric Fromm. 
And there's also a late addition who was actually a student of Adorno's, and that is Jürgen Habermas, who went on to found his own school. Now, Adorno, with his other mates in the Frankfurt School, saw the failure of um, what they believed would happen would be the transformation of capitalism into socialism. And Marx theorized that capitalism contained within it the, its, uh, the seeds for its own destruction. But that destruction did not seem to be happening, and revolution did not seem to be around the corner. If anything, at the end of World War II, there was a great uh, pessimism about the Enlightenment ideals and the promise of rationality to bring about a better society. What seemed to have happened was the use of rationality, not to promote the human good, but rather to carry out the mass extermination of not only a peoples, of the Jewish people, but other undesirables in society, quote-unquote undesirables, such as homosexuals and gypsies. There were a number of groups that were targeted by the Nazis. Adorno himself argued that capitalism had not become less, but more entrenched through what he saw as ideological means, through the use of cultural products to promote and disseminate its values, um, values that were meant to serve and to promote the interest of capitalists, of, of capital, of economic domination. I've already let slip the term cultural product, which is the culture part of culture industry. So let's take a look at that. We're going to start with a discussion of artifacts. Artifacts are things that are not naturally occurring. So in the world, you have all the naturally occurring things, and then you have things that are made. These are artifacts. And they represent the materialization of labor. That is, the transformation of matter into a thing through labor. They also represent the expression of intention. That is, we have an idea of what we're going to make. We apply this idea to the matter or the material out of which we're going to make that idea. And the result is the, the artifact that reflects, however imperfectly, the intention that we had when we set out to make this thing. Now, artifacts can be divided into things that have primarily use value and things that are primarily uh, full of meaning or significance. So let me give you an example. If you make a chair out of wood, uh, the thing that you're making is primarily something of use value. That is, you make the chair in order to be able to sit in it. But why do we make something like poetry or music? Well, the reason why we do this is in order to make sense of the world for, for significance or meaning. So the artifacts or the things that are produced through the creative process, artistic products are the chief example, uh, would be things that fall on the continuum between use value and significance or meaning on the latter side. That is, they are full of significance and meaning. Now, all things that are artifacts 
not naturally occurring, uh, fall on some sort of continuum between use value and significance. And of course, we can take something like a piece of wood or a chair and uh, mount it on a wall in a museum. And then it becomes something that we look at in order to reflect on the significance and the meaning of the chairness of the chair or of that particular chair or of the beauty of the wood or whatnot, right? So you can take something that is made primarily for use and turn it into something that is on the significance or meaning side of the um, continuum. Likewise, of course, the reverse is true. You can take something like a piece of art and uh, burn it for heat because you have no heat and that is what you have to burn. Uh, I don't know where, when that would have been the case, except maybe the Great Depression. But in any case, we can imagine that that this could happen. Um, And uh, this is where Adorno's insight comes in because he sees art being turned, appropriated, if if you will, from something that is primarily produced in and for itself as a matter of creating meaning out of experience into something that is primarily something of use value. And it's useful for the purposes of ideology. So this is the use of art as, in some cases, outright propaganda, but um, in more subtle ways as well. So cultural products are artifacts for which significance or meaning predominate over utility. So when Adorno speaks about cultural products, he's talking about these uh, artistic creations. Primarily, he was interested in music, which play a role in society. That is, they, the power of, the, of art is to be able to imagine, to represent, and to reflect on possibilities that are not yet uh, manifest. So in order to be able to move from where we are today to another situation, we have to be able to first imagine that uh, other situation. So that imaginative um, aspect of art and art making is what gives it its political oomph. And that is the power of art that Adorno sees as being appropriated by capitalism. Now, the other part of culture industry, our term is industry, and that refers to uh, capitalism. That is to the production of artifacts that uh, the production of our artifacts through mechanical means through repetition. And here Adorno is influenced by Walter Benjamin's essay, The Work of Art in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction, and his idea that through the ability to reproduce works of art, for example, to produce postcards out of the masterpiece of the Mona Lisa and to distribute those postcards anywhere in the world, um, that the work of art itself loses its aura and its authenticity as well. So for Adorno, part of what's happening is that the cultural products are being appropriated and reproduced uh, on the mass on a mass scale that not only that first of all panders to the lowest common denominator in society, but at the same time that reproduces or creates the kinds of consumers that um, capitalism needs in order to keep replicating and augmenting itself. 
The end game of this process is creating homogeneity. That is the ideological leveling down of differences in order to create a society or a culture that is unable to critically reflect and to have the means to, to imagine and to believe that another world is possible and to resist the economic oppression under late capitalism. Okay, now we have a general idea of what the term culture industry encompasses and what it means. Now I want to turn to a blog post by Max Klinger. It's on a blog that seems now more or less defunct. It seems that he's gone on to do other things. Nonetheless, this is a really good uh, introduction or not introduction, explication of the culture industry that I think manages to capture more detail than I was able to in my one and a half days uh, dealing with no, not one and a half, with my almost one day of dealing with it. Since I'm trying to produce daily podcasts, I'm going through stuff and reading a lot very quickly. So here's something that I found that is quite good. I'm going to go ahead and read this to you. It's a little bit long. It's about six or seven paragraphs. And then I want to open up some questions about this idea of the culture industry and see if it's still relevant or it obviously is still relevant, but what, in what ways we might interrogate it from our current historical standpoint. The title of this is a summary of Adorno and Horkheimer's quite interesting and staggeringly pretentious views on A. And it just leaves off on A. I don't know if part of the title is missing or if that was intentional. Um, But in any case, this is a section that's called the culture industry. Adorno and Horkheimer witnessed the emergence of new forms of mass media communication and the entertainment industry. Adorno lived in Hollywood in LA for a while and so saw the emergence and the power of Hollywood as a, uh, as a producer of cultural uh, norms and ideology. Okay, back to the essay. Um, and they, Adorno and Horkheimer, argued that these developments were of profound significance What this represented, they argued, was the subsumption of the previously relatively autonomous realm of culture into the market, governed by instrumental logic. They used the term culture industry to describe the commodification of cultural forms that had resulted from the growth of monopoly capitalism. The culture industry, they argue, plays a central role in cementing its audience to the status quo and had transformed culture itself into an ideological medium of domination. However, culture had not always served this role. Rather, the meaning and function of art changes historically. In their work, they contrast the emancipatory potential of what they term genuine or autonomous art and the products of the culture industry, which play the opposite role. By uncovering the social conditions that gave rise to both forms of art, they claim to reveal the impact that commodification has had upon art itself, and hence on society as a whole and on our very consciousness. A central tenet of Adorno's argument is the idea that under certain social conditions, art can provide an alternate vision of reality. 
He argues that autonomous art has the capacity to highlight the inequalities and irrationality of the status quo by presenting an ideal vision of what mankind can aspire towards. As such, it has an emancipatory character. The radical character of autonomous art stems not from its form, not from its content, but from its form. I find that really fascinating. Therefore, unlike other cultural critics, they argued that the most radical form of art is not that which contains a political message, because this requires an attempt to work within the existing realm of ideas to demand change. Rather, the most radical art is that which compels change through its form. Art, Adorno argued, is only autonomous when it is not subject to specific demands and is not produced for any purpose other than its functionlessness. Oh, that's a good word. Functionlessness. In the era of monopoly capitalism, he believed that new techniques of production and distribution of art had meant that the free circulation of cultural products that had characterized the bourgeois era era, had come to an end. Rather, production and circulation of cultural goods had, had come under the monopolistic control of the culture industry. This represented the triumph of instrumental reason over the role of culture. Rather than being produced for the inherent value of the piece itself, which for Adorno lay entirely in its lack of use value, its purposefulness, art now had been almost entirely commoditized. Consequently, it had lost its autonomy and with it its critical potential. No longer free from the demands of the market, the gap between art and reality, which is the basis of its critical potential, had been undermined and art had become a means by which to cement mass audiences to the status quo. In their critique of the cultural industry, Adorno and Horkheimer describe the way in which culture becomes a tool for domination. Adorno believed that the rise of the culture industry has resulted in the standardization and rationalization of cultural form and that this, in turn, had weakened, atrophied, and destroyed the capacity of the individual to think and act in a critical and autonomous way. He argued that the standardization emerges largely as a result of the capacity of those in power to control the production of cultural goods, to employ positivistic methods in an attempt to formulate a scientific measurement of people's precise taste and expectations, and in doing so, increase profitability. As the culture industry develops, this process has become more specialized, leading to the emergence of a very precisely targeted hierarchical range of goods aimed precisely to align with consumers' preconceived expectations of the product itself so none may escape. Horkheimer and Adorno focused on Hollywood as a particularly glaring example of this phenomena. In its attempt to produce a profit, Hollywood pumps out an endless stream of movies, all classified according to the exact taste of particular groups, ensuring the viewer has to exert next to no mental energy in understanding the film. Whilst there are differences in the content of each film, these differences amount to merely pseudo-individualism. That serves to mask the fact that the style and form of the film is identical to all others. 
All differences, such as variations in plot, character type, etc., are simply superficial imitations of individuality that mask the fundamental uniformity of all its products. The studio spent enormous amounts promoting bigger, better films, new brands, a new star. But rather than these differences, in fact, it is the underlying structural uniformity which is the really meaningful content of the film. Standardized art does not stimulate critical social reflection. Rather, it creates standardized responses. And that, I think, is a really important point. Unlike authentic art, It doesn't challenge our conception of existing social norms and reality, but rather reinforces them. The viewer is presented with a smooth and comfortable spectacle that requires no deep concentration and elicits no genuine attempt to criticize the art. Everything has been pre-classified by the production team. And I just had a thought. um, If you go to a film and you ask, what, what did you think of the film? Or if you go to a show, what did you think of the show? Most of what happens, most of the conversation that, f- that follows is usually, oh, I liked it, or I didn't like it. But the ability to actually reflect on and criticize the art as art is really difficult to get at. I have experienced that myself. And I think that is an, a, f- a phenomena, an effect of the kind of um, the, the processes that Adorno and Horkheimer describe here. Okay, I'm going to return to the text. Everything has been pre-classified by the production team, and the audience has no choice but to become a passive, unreceptive recipient of the art. This process is reinforced by the incessant, incessant and deliberate incorporation of cues within the works themselves, which direct us to leave us with little doubt as to the correct reaction. A TV show will contain canned laughter, a movie, sad music, and so on. Thus, programs watch for their audiences and popular music hears for those who listen. That is also really interesting. Not only are we, um, that when we consume these mass cultural products, we're also being taught what to feel, what's appropriate, how to feel, when to feel. Um, and all of those responses are pro- being programmed into us by our consumption of these cultural products. By, uh, let's see, by repeatedly supplying formulaic products that vary only little in their underlying form and which are explicitly designed with the aim of eliciting a particular response requiring minimal mental effort, the culture industry serves to create dependence upon its own products by making us fearful of anything genuinely new or innovative. So we lose touch with our own feelings and our own thoughts because we are being programmed to have only certain feelings and thoughts. It's, uh, it's psychoanalysis in the reverse. Rather than challenging our repetitive and destructive patterns of thoughts, of thought and behavior, it serves to reinforce these patterns. For this reason, Adorno and Horkheimer rejected the term mass culture in favor of the term culture industry, which it was hoped would highlight the extent to which the cultural products that we consume and the demand that gives rise to them are imposed upon us from above rather than arising spontaneously from the masses. 
Okay, there's only a couple more paragraphs left. Unlike autonomous art, which was able to main, maintain probably some autonomy for, from the marketplace, today art is entirely a commodity. Thus, the autonomy which allowed art to maintain its distance from reality has been eradicated, and its production is determined by need. Consequently, art is no longer able to maintain any distance from reality. Rather, it creates art that is indistinguishable from reality. This is the new ideology of the cult culture industry. Adorno and Horkheimer argue that the culture industry represents a new form of ideological domination. In, that, in the past, ideology has been dependent upon defining society as it is not. And this could be subjected to a critique in its own terms. For example, is the market just based on the definition of justice provided by capitalism itself? Today, culture was ideological precisely because it depicted reality exactly as it is. The culture industry's products do not serve to challenge our existing norm, normative assumptions. Rather, they reinforce the status quo by depicting it as entirely natural and unquestionable. This is a form of pseudo-realism, as it prevents critical analysis of the existing social and economic order. It serves to create a sense of fatalism and an acceptance of the existing order as unquestionable. It pacifies any social discontent by presenting not a picture of an alternate reality, but an alternative picture of the existing reality. Finally, Adorno and Horkheimer believe that a key function of the culture industry was to distinguish the revolutionary potential of the masses by providing relief from the stresses of life under capitalism through a brief and surface through brief and surface level distractions. However, it cannot provide genuine happiness, only short-lived and meaningless pleasure, what Adorno will later call or refers to as distractions. Real happiness comes from the challenge of decoding complex work and the intellectual stimulation that this provides. The culture industry, by contrast, provides only formulaic and predictable escape from reality and one which, which, and one which stays within existing social and artistic boundaries. And that is a courtesy of Max Klinger, who gave me permission to read that part uh, of his blog post, which I'll link in the podcast notes for this podcast. If you're interested, you can go ahead, uh, go on over there and read it since I went through it pretty quickly. But a couple of things stayed with me. The first is this idea that um, art is can serve this function of allowing us to imagine that the world can be other than it is, that it has this distance from reality that allows us uh, to reflect on the reality in which we live. That art does this not because of the content, right? So overtly political art uh, isn't necessarily or is not the only way in which art contributes to pol politics, but that it is the form of art, which is significant, the form that art can take, 
that it is through its form that art challenges reality. So the very form, the formal aspects of art is what's being undermined. So it's not the content of art that is changing, but the form and the social function of art. And we can think about different ways in which um, artistic form has changed in order to challenge the status quo. One of them might have been, well, every major art movement has done this. So the reduction of um, what is seen, what is perceived in minimalism to line and form to volume and shape, uh, that is a formal um, jump from the pictorial approach to, to painting and to representation. And it puts into question the what is really real, right? Is what is really real what we perceive in the pictorial sense, right? We're looking at the scene uh, of a lake with a boat, and that is what we perceive. We take this to be reality normally, but what some art challenging this convention can teach us is that that that, that which we perceive underneath that or accompanying that there are a set of formal visual um, realities which are really real that anchor our ability to perceive as such so what then is the political maybe upshot of that well uh it's if we go back to plato's cave right the idea is that we live in a world of shadows and illusions and art can help us to reach that inkling of a thought that maybe this world that we perceive is fleeting and changing and that there is something more real that is formal rather than perceptual that is where truth and reality actually reside. Just one example. So that stood out for me that Adorno had made a point of, of making this point. And then the other thing that stayed with me was at the very end, let me see if I can get back to it. Um, the idea that the issue isn't just that capitalistic interest have overtaken the production of art and reproduced it to the extent that it is pandering to the lowest common denominator and thus uh, dumbing down the possibilities of art. The claim is actually a little bit stronger because the claim is that through art, the, the people, the consciousnesses that are being produced in this situation are ones that are unable, programmed to be unable to critically reflect on reality because there is no possibility of distancing yourself from reality in order to reflect on it. And that, um, oh, just lost my train of thought. Right, so the 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 idea that the human being is changing under the situation, that consciousness, human consciousness is atrophying because of this inability to develop the, 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 the consciousness needed for 
resistance, for critique, for even understanding the situation that they're in. That I think is very perceptive as well. And I think still very relevant today. And that brings me to some of the questions that I wanted to ask. Look, we've known uh, culture industry was written, was in, you know, the term was coined and it was written about since at least 1944. There is an earlier instance of it, um, but at least in this form, right? 1944, we're in 2016 now. And that's a long time for us to uh, have the ability to understand what is happening to us, right? We have these philosophers and us... Uh, raising the flag, saying, whoa, danger up ahead. Uh, be careful. The consumption of these mass products of culture, cultural mass cultural products, uh, will change you. And will change you in a way that will make it unable to, to, to politically appreciate your situation and to better your situation. Will create passive, receptive audiences with no interest in understanding the art, but who only react to it in ways that they have been programmed to react in appropriate ways. This is the creation of a social uh, homogeneity that is, for me at least, very troublesome. We've known this for a long time, right? And the response socially that we've had to it hasn't hasn't been one of outcry oh that's terrible uh let's fight against this let's band together and do something about it. no 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 i think the response and i'm including myself in this is like give me more i like the soothed <laughs> passive receptive state i don't want to have to do the work to think uh intellectually and to do the work that needs to be done in order to actually feel happy rather than emulate happiness in the way that we're taught to emulate happiness. Um, why is that, right? Why is it that not only do we accept this, but we want more of it. We, we have a hunger and a need to be, um, to, to, to be, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, drugged out of our minds with this ideology. That's not the right word. Uh, it'll come to me. Anyways, um, yeah, that's that's a little troubling. And I include myself in this because I consume a lot of mass culture, what I recognize to be, you know, mass cultural products. Uh, there are some reality TV shows that I get pretty engrossed in. And as I'm watching them, I'm thinking, you know, I know exactly what this is doing to me and I don't care. I want more. Give me more Big Brother, more Survivor, more reality TV. Um, the not numbing, that was the word I was looking for. The numbing effect of it is very powerful. And uh, when you're numb, you don't have any feelings, much less the feeling that you should be getting up and going to do something outside or whatnot. Okay, so that's one question is, why the heck do we not only, knowing this, uh, have some sort of response to it, but we give into it even more. We feel even more defeated. We, we feel even more of a hunger for this type of cultural products. The other question that I have, and let me actually go to my notes here because now I'm talking off the cuff. I had three things that I wanted to bring up. The other thing was, can we imagine, or is it possible for specific artists, people who 
um, are making art to escape this and to say, I'm not going to make that kind of art that can be commoditized, right? I'm going to resist being commercial, commercialization of my artwork. And I'm going to just make my art, right? What happens in that instance? Do you know any artists who make art and have attempted to resist the commodification of their art? Is it even possible? Can you think of any examples? And then the other question that I have, uh, on which I have a little bit more to say, is, is there a form that art can take that in and of itself cannot be commodified? And what I was thinking here is that um, performance art is something that is very difficult, if not impossible, to turn into a commodity. That's why there has been some interest in scholarly in the scholarly work that I've read in understanding the parameters for performance art. Because look, performance art, say um, theater, right? Uh, a piece of uh, a production, a theater production, unless it's like. Broad, you know, Broadway is like an excellent example of the way that the theatrical form has been turned into a, a cultural product of mass consumption. But say a little theater production in um, uh, in a, in in any old town, you know, U.S. Each of the performances in its run are unique. Right, no one performance is like the other. And there is really no substitute for actually sitting in that theater and watching that production. Of course, you can videotape it. But the experience of performance art or the experience of theater, of being in the theater and sharing in that performance with others in the audience, can't be replicated. It can't be reproduced in the ways that Walter Benjamin talks about the reproduction of art, which primarily had to do with, you know, visual art. And for Adorno, a lot of it had to do with the reproduction of, uh, of music uh, and of musical forms. So I think performance art is a good example of at least one form that has not been able to be commodified yet. So that's just an example. And I'm wondering if any of you can think of any other examples along those same lines. Um, my second point that I wanted to bring to this text is the idea that perhaps part of what's missing for me from this text, especially since it's a Marxist-influenced uh, interpretation of late capitalism or what they call monopoly capitalism, right? the emergence of global monopolies uh, as economic forces. What's missing for me from this account, and I was looking online trying to find something that would bring this to, um, to this school of critical theory and to this idea, and I didn't find anything. But mind you, I didn't have that much time to look for it. Um, but here it is. It's the production of spaces that allow for art to be commodified, right? So the production of the museum space is what comes to mind. The production of the, the musical venue and the whole system, the network that dominates the selling of tickets to these musical venues. Um, so not only physical spaces, of course, there's also virtual spaces uh, on the internet, 
So the creation, the material reality of the spatial dimensions of how culturally homogeneity is produced, not through just ideology or uh, ideas, but through the physical constraint of our lives, given how our physical spaces are organized, arranged, and produced. And uh, luckily, you guys voted tonight uh, to have Lefebvre be next on the list. Because I think Lefebvre's uh, theory of the production of space gives us that piece that we are missing from, or that I feel that I am missing in this account. So I think if you merge this idea of culture industry with an analysis of culture, not as disembodied, but as located uh, in space and the spatial production of the domination, the economic and, and social domination of cultures, that you get a much fuller, I think, more satisfying account. Well, that's it for today. I still want to hear what you guys thought about the last podcast and how Leibniz would potentially answer uh, Newton's challenge of the bucket. You can hashtag your answers or your comments, as always, to hashtag ContinentalPhilNow. You can also at me, uh, at TPhilosophia on Twitter, and link to my Twitter page and to all the references that I used to put together today's podcast can be found on our new website, ContinentalPhilosophyNow.com. Until tomorrow, this is Dr. Alfonso signing off.